Hi, this is Randy Cross of the San Francisco 49ers, three-time Super Bowl champion, and I love my time with the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the ProSource Podcasters. I'm your co-host, Nee Wallace-Bruce, a.k.a. NWB, and I'm joined by Kobe D. Mr. Kobe Durant. Kobe, how you doing? Fantastic, buddy. I love this week. You know that. Yeah, it's it's a big week. It's really the start of the NFL season. It's NFL draft week, and we have a special guest. He's actually he's actually a man who's brought the Super Bowl back to San Francisco. I'm not talking about Steve Young. I'm not talking about Joe Montana. I'm talking about Mr. Pat Gallagher, an executive who's well known in the Bay Area. He's former uh, executive at the Giants, and then as I alluded to, he's brought the Super Bowl to San Francisco in a way that you may not have thought of, but we'll get into later on. Pat, how you doing? I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on. And are you happy to see baseball back as well? I am. You know, baseball, you know, I, I worked in baseball for 32 years. And uh, when they get into these labor management issues, which has happened a few times, it's like none of the rest of us exist, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad it's back. And uh, and my Giants are, are playing pretty well so far. So all good. Yeah, they're looking pretty good in the NL West. I, honestly, I thought they were going to go all the way last season, but they ran into, well, the NL is pretty tough last season, to be honest. We won 107 games. That's, you know. Yeah, 107 games, and they had to face another team that had 100-plus wins. So that's an interesting way of the postseason structure, but we won't get into that. <laughs> now, you you were in the Giants during the tough times and also during the the boom times. Take us right. through that, if you don't mind. I got into baseball in the in the mid-70s. I'm a marketing guy, and I was uh, the marketing guy for a couple of marine parks, SeaWorld that most of you have heard of, and a park called Marine World, which is in the Bay Area. And the Giants were just sold. They were going to move to Toronto at that point in 1975. A local investor, Bob Lurie, came in, and he paid $8 million for the Giants in 1975. Uh, 76 to keep them from moving to Toronto. You, it's just, it's hard to even believe. In those years, <laughs> our most expensive ticket was five bucks. And, uh, you know, beers cost a dollar and people still complained about them. So it was, you know, it was a different era than it is now. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, you can still get tickets for five dollars if you're lucky. Well, right now you can. Yeah, they're, baseball's doing whatever they can to try to get people to show up. So I think that the, the labor difficulties, Really, I think did some damage that it's going to take a while for baseball to to uh, get it back, but I think they will. Yeah, yeah, and I I think baseball we're, we're based in Toronto, and I think baseball in Canada suffered when there was the stoppage in 1994. Montreal never recovered, and the Toronto Blue Jays were a different team. Now, I got to ask: Were there serious rumblings of a move to Toronto? Was it? Yeah, no, it was. Uh, you know, the, the, the previous owner of the Giants, Horace Stoneham, who moved him from New York to San Francisco, 
was uh, really in bankruptcy. You know, he wound up selling Willie Mays to the Mets, and he got rid of all of his, most of his payroll, and he was in, in sort of in dire needs. And so at that time, I think it was Labatt's, the Labatt's Brewery was going to be the major investor, and they were going to move the team to Toronto. That was in the summer of uh, 1970. It was actually in 1975, and the team wound up staying in the spring of 1976. All right. Yeah, so it could have been, hey, hey, been the Toronto Giants, you know? The Toronto Giants. That is a nice ring to it, doesn't it, Cope? Uh, it would have worked. It would have worked. <laughs> Blue Jays is fine, though. <laughs> <laughs> now, Pat, what got you into, like, sports executive head office to begin with? Like I say, I'm a marketing guy, a sales guy, and that, that's, that was my job in the theme park business. I was the guy who figured out a way to sell tickets, do promotions. That's how I got into the business, and I wound up running the, the business operations. So I was in my mid-20s uh, working for Marine World, which is a theme park in uh, the San Francisco Peninsula, and the Giants uh, were looking for a marketing guy. I have a close friend who said, hey, you know, you should go interview for that job. And so I went and met with them. I went had several interviews, and they offered me the job. So it was... I'd like to tell you it was well thought out and I had to, you know, I had to fight, had to fight through all kinds of stuff. But, you know, 1976, it was sort of a different era. I think I was the first, I certainly was the first person with the title of director of marketing with the Giants. And I was, I think I was one of only, I don't know, a couple in Major League Baseball. It, you know, the PR guy was king. And, uh, you know, they, they, baseball didn't really do a good job of marketing uh, themselves. And so I got a chance to sort of get in on the ground floor, so to speak. Now, you operate as a consultant now, correct? Yeah, you know what? I do uh, I do consulting for all kinds of, just with all those years of experience, I, you know, whether it's teams or leagues or one one instance kind of interesting is the, the city of Pasadena down in L.A. that has the Rose Bowl, maybe, you know, one of the most famous venues in the world. They're trying to figure out how to keep a, a hundred-year-old venue, uh, you know, how to keep it. So, yeah. so I consult with that, and I, I'm doing some things. I'm mostly concerned, mostly interested in education, people who want to get into this business. So I do uh, a lot of mentoring. When I left the Giants, the Giants set up a, a fellowship in my name at University of San Francisco in their sport management program. So I get a chance to see a lot of the, the students through there, and that's that's sort of my way of giving back now. So I enjoy it. Okay. So from a marketing perspective, when, when it concerns major league baseball, which teams are doing it right and which ones are doing it wrong? Well, boy, I, you know, I'd like to tell you, I pay attention to all that stuff now, but you know, I think that the teams that really try hard to win, people tend to relate all that with money, but I don't, I think that like, you know, I got to give the Dodgers credit. I got to give the San Diego Padres credit in that they haven't had the success that they've hoped, but they're swinging from the end of the bat. You know, they're trying to figure it out. And, you know, a new guy just bought the um, New York Mets and uh, they look like they're going to be formidable. So you look at those teams and then you look on the other side of it, you know, the Oakland A's, you know, Tampa Bay. There's a couple of franchises that are sort of, what I say, sick. They just need to uh, either need to be relocated or they need to need some new energy. But I love seeing some of the young players that are, are out there. And, uh, uh, you know, like everybody, I'm getting used to the new 
the rules and the and the way you know sort of technology is kind of getting involved in the game. I think some of that stuff is good, and some of it I, I I'm sort of wait and see. Okay, no, fair fair enough, and I agree with you, especially when it comes to the Padres. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you say some of it's wait and see. I I'd, I'd say some of it's let let's not have it <laughs> like this. The rules such as um having a runner on base in extra innings, I think that's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't think that's good for the game. I don't think it speeds up the game. I get why it's there, but yeah. How do you feel about the uh, the technology assisted balls and strikes, which is coming? It's not there yet, but it's coming. I mean, after Angel Hernandez's performance on Sunday, <laughs> I think it might be coming a bit quicker. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't great uh to watch and i kind of like the human element but at the same time there's now with sports betting involved people are going to be demanding more accuracy and more consistency i don't know man i think it takes a little bit away from the game though well it does take it away i mean you don't see managers getting thrown out of games arguing calls as much anymore and uh but on the other hand, you know, the technology exists. So if you can do it where there still is a human element, I mean, when they first instituted uh, instant replay, ahead of that, umpires were very much against that. And they managed to, what it's shown really is, for the most part, it shows how good umpires are. You know, they get it right most of the time. But when they don't, the umpires are not sort of ridiculed over the whole thing. So I think that's an important thing. I think the balls and strike thing is they're experimenting it uh, with it this year and and some of the independent leagues. I think if it can be an assist to an umpire who will, I don't think umpires are going to go away anytime soon. I think it's if it's an assist to an umpire and it helps them make the right call, they will realize that it's uh, that it's something that ought to happen. Yeah. No, umpires all ha- always have a role. I mean, even if it's just to break up fights or <laughs> when the event is cleared. I say that in jest, but umpires definitely have a role, and you don't want to see a fully auto- automated game because... No, and I don't think that's that's going to happen. They, a lot of people relate it. You know, if you watch a professional tennis match and you see how the technology can make the, uh, you know, the, the, the in-and-out calls in- almost instantaneously, I don't think that's going to happen in baseball, but... The technology does have a role, and you watch it. I'm amazed. You see catchers now with this little wrist touchpad who are actually communicating with the pitcher on what the pitch yeah. is. I, ne- I never thought that would happen. Well, we can thank the Houston Astros for that. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, hey, hey th- th- thank God for trash cans, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will never forget that. I will never let it go. Uh, but anyway... Staying in a somewhat similar vein, mm-hmm. let's talk about when you're at the Giants. That was a boom time. You had Silicon Valley coming up in, in the San Francisco area, and you also had Barry Bonds coming up as well. The chase for home run superiority. Was he a marketing dream when you were the executive at the Giants? I've seen, I've seen a lot of baseball games, and he's the greatest player I've ever seen personally. I never got a chance to see Willie when he played uh, every day, but Barry's the best player I ever saw. I mean, he yes, he's controversial, but I, you know, when the time when we built a new ballpark in San Francisco, when a left-handed hitter could actually hit one in the water, he was the secret sauce that helped us sell that concept, help us privately finance the ballpark, and I don't know that we would have been able to do it if it hadn't been for Barry. So, 
I think he's controversial. A lot of people, you know, don't like him. Um, it remains to be seen whether he's, you know, eventually going to get in the Hall of Fame. I, you know, I think he will eventually, but, but he was the greatest asset that we could have had during that period of time. But on the other hand, we went from the worst ballpark probably ever, Candlestick Park, to what a lot of people regard as one of the best ballparks. But he was a, a big part of us having the ability to raise the money to, to privately finance it. The house that Barry built. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say that. I still have a soft spot for Candlestick, though. I just, even this, the name rings true for me. But the stories are going to get better and better as years go by. I mean, it's, it's not like Valley Forge where people were slogging through the snow and, you know, all that. But it really was pretty difficult to put up with, not only for fans, but also for if you had to play there. Now, in, in your marketing role, who did you answer to? I answered to the owner, the owner of the team. That's um, it, right? When I, when I joined the, the Giants, there were about 20 people in the front office. So it was a fairly small organization. Now, eventually, I think the Giants have 350 people now, something like that. I answered to the owner. There were a couple of us, guys that, the guy that ran the, the baseball operations, and there was a few others who, if it was something that I was going to try that was controversial, I'd sort of get everybody else to weigh in on it. But I was able to do some things that were sort of offbeat, and people still remember them today. And it was not because I was so smart. It was because I was desperate. I mean, you have to be real. The ballpark, the weather and everything out, out there was so difficult at times. Being able to say, hey, come on out and bring your family. The sun's shining and all that. It's just, you know, people just wouldn't, wouldn't believe you. So, um, so I figured if we exaggerated it, way more people would would have a sense of humor about it. And fortunately, they did. Okay, most off-the-wall idea you actually put into practice. Well, I, I think the, the quad of candlestick, which was the, the little badge of, of courage that you couldn't buy it, you had to earn it. And the way you earned it was doing the most courageous thing a Giants fan could ever do, which was to stay until the end of an extra inning night game. You know, <laughs> and we, we, basically we were daring people to show up. <laughs> and uh, and then two years later, we introduced the Crazy Crab, which was uh, the anti-mascot. And that was the age where a lot of teams were putting, you know, the San Diego Chicken and a lot of fuzzy mascots out there. Yeah. And so we we introduced a mascot that people were supposed to hate. And uh, the whole idea was, as soon as the mascot came on the field, you would boo it. And, you know, we, <laughs> it started out just as a TV commercial because we were trying to show we were trying to, you know, tongue in cheek. We were trying to show that Giants fans were were different. They wouldn't put up with anything as stupid as a as a mascot. And uh, we actually put it out on the field. And that was, God, that was nineteen, wow, well, nineteen eighty four. And people still talk about it. It only lasted for one season because you know the Giants lost ninety six games. So you know anything you do during that year. And then the next year, nineteen eighty five, it was so t so tough out there at night. You know, I suggested and put to, put a plan together to play mostly day games. I figured, hey, we'd be like the Chicago Cubs of the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Giants didn't lose 96 games. They lost 100 games. <laughs> and I think I think playing mostly day games, I was probably responsible for, you know, maybe 15 of those. Okay. Okay. But no, it's actually kind of a cool, cool idea when it comes right down to it. When you have, you have, you know, lemons, you make lemonade, you know. You know, and I, and I really say this. I was, was serious about it, and these things were, we, did, we weren't too cavalier about it. But, you know, sometimes 
people can sense when you're when you're trying to do things that are honest and real and fun. And I always sort of felt that we were in the fun business. And so that was the spirit in which we did all this stuff. No, for sure. That makes total sense. Yeah, I would say I'd say this podcast is honest, real and fun, to be honest. <laughs> well, yeah, it should be. I mean, why, why, why would people listen to it if it wasn't? All of us and you guys doing this, and if you get to work in this business, I mean, it's not like we're selling life insurance or, you know, we're selling encyclopedias or whatever. We're, we're talking about things that people do for fun, and that's what professional sports is. I, I think it's a great thing. There we go. Now, staying with fun, I should have pointed out before, I'm a 49ers fan, and Cove is a Denver Broncos fan. So Here we Super, go. Super Bowl 50 was special more for Cove than me. But yeah. as I said at the top, you did bring the Super Bowl back to San Francisco. And that that's no mean feat, especially the 50th anniversary Super Bowl. Tell us about that. Well, it was interesting about it. So I had left the Giants. The only Super Bowl that had ever been in the Bay Area was uh, in the mid-'80s. I think it was 84 or 85. And it was at Stanford Stadium because that was the only place that was big enough. The NFL wanted to have these games on the West Coast in L.A., and they always wanted to have one in San Francisco. There was just never a good enough place to play. Oakland Coliseum was not considered to be good enough. No way they would do it at Candlestick. So Stanford Stadium was the place. So move the clock forward. Now the 49ers are building this beautiful new stadium. A couple years ahead of it, we put in a bid. And it's interesting. They asked me if I would help raise the money to, to do the bid. So it's fascinating because you're if when you raise the money to do something like this, you have to do it in a way that is a it's a community benefit. I mean, there's a lot of people who in the Bay Area who aren't crazy about football. They certainly don't like traffic. But if you can do something that it was not just bringing the game here, but the added thing that we added to it, which I wasn't sure if it would work, but it did, was that 25% of the money that we raised and we wound up raising $50 million, $50, million, kind of a coincidence that that's what it took. That's what it took to put it on. But we wound up giving away more money than anybody had ever given away to charity. So, you know, the way we looked at it was, you know, you can argue about everything else, but, you know, how do you argue about doing something good for charity? And uh, I think the economic impact in the Bay Area was uh, about $250 million, which was which was great, and the the game went off without a hitch, and uh, it was a good thing for the 49ers and their organization because they had a brand new stadium that they had a chance to to show off. So, um, interesting thing about the number 50, that was the first Super Bowl where there was an actual number versus the Roman numeral. But if you think about it, so I'm the marketing guy, and I'm looking, you know, I'm going through the whole thing. We get awarded the game, and all of a sudden I'm looking at it, and I say, well, what's the Roman numeral for 50? And it's an L. And so you kind of go, wait a minute. And the L is the, I, I went to one uh, meeting one time when I actually took my finger and put it on top of my head and formed an L. Like, <laughs> it, it was like the, it was like the symbol for loser. <laughs> and so I think the, the NFL figured out the same thing. So we had suggested that rather than use that, that loser symbol, that we go with the number 50. And thank God the NFL uh, agreed because they approve everything that you try to do. It was a great experience. You know, we got the 49ers and the, and the Raiders to, 
to give us their Super Bowl trophies. You know, they, between the two organizations, they have eight Lombardi trophies. For about three months before the Super Bowl, we paraded them around the Bay Area where you could actually go up and, and almost touch them, get close. Because, the, the, you know, there's 7 million people in the Bay Area. Only 70,000 would be able to go to the game. So we had to figure out a way to bring the game out to the people. You know, in different parts of the country, the Bay Area, people are not necessarily as rabid of fans as they are in other parts of the country. It doesn't mean that you don't have them, but there's just as many people who say, you know, who don't care about any of these professional sports. They care about more social justice, social causes, whatever. It's, it's very progressive out here, which is, you know, makes it a fun place to live. But doing business sometimes, it makes it a pretty frustrating place to live. So you had to attack it differently. The stadiums are not publicly financed out here where they are in other parts of the country. So it's just a different, a different atmosphere. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting insight. That's something that I guess fans were not always thinking about. I guess sometimes fans, we just think, okay, we'll get through weeks one through 17 or 18 get the Super Bowl oh who's hosting it this year oh it's in that city we're not we're not thinking about the the mechanics of getting getting the bids and then getting stuff ready so that's interesting this episode is brought to you by the good folks at New Smile just use the code ProSports to get $150 off any of their teeth aligning kits so turn up the dial on your smile with New Smile now on to the show so when you put a Super Bowl bid together they give you this thing, a request for a proposal, and it's like 150 pages of, you know, the rules and regulations and things that you have to have. So you put this bid together, and people have done it, and they, you know, they've done it and, and put it in these big elaborate binders that are embossed and everything. We wound up putting our Super Bowl bid on, a, on an iPad because uh, we got Apple, who was not an NFL sponsor, to go along with it. And... You know, we were trying to say that our approach was three-pronged. We said, look, if we get a chance to do this Super Bowl, you got a new stadium out here in San Francisco, it's going to be the most technologically advanced Super Bowl ever. It'll be the most giving Super Bowl ever, and we'll engage more fans than any Super Bowl ever. And that was sort of the, I think, combined with the new stadium, that was the music to the uh, – to the ears of the NFL owners. And, you know, we, we had to go back and actually present this in a room with every NFL owner. At the, It was at the Boston airport. And there's like, you know, 300 of the richest people in the world. We have 15 minutes to go up and give our pitch. It was kind of harrowing. But when we wound up uh, getting it, uh, we celebrated. And I, I don't know if you can say this on a podcast. I was I was saying, holy shit, we actually got it. You know, so. <laughs> there we go. Yes, you can. On our podcast, you can say that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it, it was a great, it was a fantastic experience. And, you know, we got a chance to, to bring a lot of people, a lot of young people, people in their 20s and 30s who were just getting into the business, got them uh, to help build a team. You know, we had to recruit 5,000 volunteers. And so it was a... Uh, you know, it was a great thing. How much time did you have to prepare the pitch? Well, it was in uh, November of 2012 is when they asked me and a few others to, to consider doing this. And so we agreed. So this was November of 2012. By uh, the end of April of 2013, 
we had to show at that time that we had $30 million committed to, um, okay. to do it. So not a long time. And then we may, actually made the pitch in May of 2013. That's when we were awarded it. And so then we had, what, two and a half years. Uh, the game was in February of 2016. So we had this clock on the wall. It was like one of these countdown clocks where it's down to the second. Yeah. And God, you'd, you know, you'd go and get a cup of coffee and you say, Oh my God, I just wasted 10 seconds. You know, <laughs> we can laugh about it now. And it was a wonderful thing, but going through it was, um, you know, it was challenging and it was difficult, but it was, uh, what was nice about it, it was a milestone Super Bowl for the, for the, the NFL and they treated it as such. And it was a big deal for the Bay Area. And we did a lot of good. So, And do you remember any of the cities you were up against? Yeah. The way they did it at that time is that we were bidding against Miami, Florida, who had hosted like 10 Super Bowls. So, yeah. And they were pretty confident they were going to get it. But they had not done the – their owner at the time, who his name escapes me, had not done the renovations to the stadium that the NFL wanted. So – so we went up against them. It was pretty cool. This whole thing, this whole bid process and the awarding of it was was live on the NFL network. So we make our pitch, 15 minutes. We go back into the green room and we're kind of sitting there, kind of, you know, kind of loosen our ties and kind of get ready. And Miami goes and they make their pitch. And then we're watching on television. The commissioner, they pass all these notes up to the front and he picks up these little ballots and he goes, yeah, it gives me great pleasure to award the 50th Super Bowl to San Francisco. And so on the NFL Network, we're cheering like hell. Yeah. And the people from from Miami are pissed and they're, <laughs> they're kind of hanging their head. And so the way it worked is, and then whoever the, the loser of that was, was going to be pitted against Houston, Texas, who had a fantastic bid. And Houston... Um, wound up hosting a Super Bowl a couple years later. So, yeah. yeah, we went against Miami, and then the loser of that would uh, was pitted against um, Houston, Texas. All right. Okay, okay. And have, have you been to the new L.A. stadium? I have. <clears throat> I, I didn't go to the Super Bowl, but I, I had the opportunity to go down there. There's nothing else quite like it. It'll be interesting to see how it sort of stands the test of time mm -hmm. because it's – I mean, it literally, it's so gigantic – and the whole footprint is so – it's not one of those things that you can sort of walk down the street and kind of, you know, walk into it or, or sit in a bar across the street and walk into it. You can't you can't even get close. So, you know, eventually maybe they'll fill that out. But the stadium, you know, you kind of think we spent, uh, I don't know, $350 million to build our ballpark in San Francisco. This stadium was $5 billion with a B. Yeah. So it's, it, it's really impressive and uh, – We'll see how it stands the test of time. Yeah, I've heard it described as like visiting an airport. It's it's got that feel to it. That's a great view, a great feeling, and it's interesting because it's got a cover over the top of it, but it's not. It's an open air stadium because you don't really need air conditioning in California. Eventually, or sometimes you need to protect from the rain. I don't know where else you could build one quite like that, but it's. Uh, it's amazing. It really is amazing, and it's a totally immersive experience. I was really impressed with it, and all the other creature comforts inside. I thought they did a, they really did a, a, a terrific job. So, uh, the game I saw was the Pittsburgh Steelers and the San Diego Chargers. <laughs> so it was a little different than a Super Bowl. Yeah, sl slightly. Yeah, but definitely worth the price of admission. Obviously. 
Well, I didn't pay, so uh, <laughs> I, I got invited, and I got to sit in the luxury suite, which was great fun. And uh, that's one of the things when you work in this business, you sort of get jaded in a way, is that, you know, paying to actually go to a sporting event, it's sort of, it's just not something that you that you do. So Maybe we'll get there too, Nick. There we go. You we, can have, we can have hope. <laughs> you, guys will, you, you guys will get there. You guys will get there. I love that. Yep, I love that. Now, Bob, I'm going to ask a selfish question as a 49ers fan. After Super Bowl 50, did you have much to do with the Niners or did you potentially have any – could you see yourself working with the Niners in the future? You know, they're, they're, they're terrific people. The people that, that own it and run the team are great people, and they were incredibly supportive of the things that we did, and they actually – provided a lot of assets that helped us put the game on. So um, we didn't actually work for the 49ers. We were working on their behalf. We were a nonprofit organization. So any money that we could raise, you know, aside from what it took to, to put the game on, uh, was given away to charity. So, I, hey, I maintain a, a great relationship with the people that own it and the people who run it. They're good people, and uh, but no, I, I and I, you know, at some point there's going to be talk of doing another one in the Bay Area. I'll be, uh, I'm going to be too old uh, to, to think about that. But it was great fun, and the people who actually got a chance to come together to work on this thing, I was a senior citizen. Most of them were twenty and thirty somethings. It's an experience that they'll never forget, and so maybe some of them will get a chance to work on it again. Yeah, hopefully. Now, just thinking outside of the box here. I know Las Vegas has the upcoming Super Bowl. There is another stadium that's going to be renovated in the future. Kobe, it may not be at the front of your mind, but it's actually not far away from here. It's Buffalo. You know, I saw it. I saw it, and 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 actually, that is not a it's not a privately financed stadium. I mean, the taxpayers are going to pay for that's for right. some of that, which is controversial. I've been following it. The governor of New York, who stepped in and wound up actually helping to broker it. Hey, I certainly couldn't criticize them. I think that the different solutions are, are good for different areas. You know, Buffalo, New York, I mean, it's not uh, among the top markets, you know, that you would go. I think that maybe they would have to have some assistance. But, yeah, Buffalo, New York. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pulling for the underdogs. One of these years, Buffalo's going to win one. Every, every dog has his day. So, Not just win one. Let's go one step further and say host one because – Buffalo's a unique market. Yes, it's West New York, but it has a whole country on its back doorstep with Canada. And we know Canada's not getting one anytime soon. We know the CFL is going to be like kicking its feet. There's no Super Bowl coming up here. There's not even a franchise. But I know the Super Bowl is held outdoors in New York, New Jersey. Is there any chance at all, Pat, that Buffalo with their renovated stadium can host a Super Bowl in the future? Well, I, I got to tell you, it's easy for me to say this. Because I, you know, I won't be held responsible. But I think absolutely they should have the opportunity to host the Super Bowl because, uh, because of just what the things that you just said. It's the United States, but it's right on the border of Canada, a gigantic market, and I think a new facility is going to have all the creature comforts that they would need. So I would say they ought to be pulling and putting their plans together to to host one. I mean, if you can do a Super Bowl in New York. In the middle of wintertime, I mean that's that was crazy. We we actually one of the Super Bowls that we went to ahead of it was in Phoenix, Arizona, where the weather's fantastic, 
and uh, it rained the whole week that the Super Bowl was in uh-huh. in Phoenix. So, <laughs> so no, I I would say, and you guys can maybe help start boosting this on your podcast. I would say absolutely, uh, Buffalo should should be a candidate to host the Super Bowl. There we go. All right, that's something to. What do you reckon, Cobe? I mean, it would be great for us because of location, but uh, I don't know, man. That the infrastructure in that city, I don't. It would take a lot. It would take a lot. Well, but it also would help boost the city too. So, oh, big time, big time. But yeah, it would there be there be a lot of money involved to get Buffalo ready for a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. I think if you leverage the the Toronto and the Niagara Falls aspect, a, a Super Bowl by, by Niagara Falls, that, that might. Well, be how, how far is how far is uh, Toronto from uh, Buffalo? It's two hours. Well, you know what? Because the big consideration about hosting a Super Bowl, since most of the people who are going are coming from out of town, is whether you have enough hotel rooms. That's right. And so now if you add the the whole Airbnb factor that all of a sudden private residences that used to be, used to have have to have hotels, I mean, it's not out of the question, I don't think. Okay. Watch this space on that one. We we could dream. I'd love, hey, I'd love to work on it because it would be a dream. You would be bringing something not only special to the people of, of Buffalo, but it would be a great thing for the NFL. I mean, if baseball can can go stage the a baseball game out in the middle of a cornfield, or hockey be in a in a stadium, uh, you know, hundred thousand seat stadium, why couldn't you do a Super Bowl in Buffalo? That's right. I mean. I think the Bills Mafia headquarters is actually in Toronto when it comes right down to it. There's so many fans here. <laughs> well, yeah, that's great. Fantastic. Yeah, so that's the thing. You get, you, you leverage that. You get, maybe get Drake involved. I'm sure he wouldn't mind being a part of that. Uh, it's not impossible. I've, I feel like it will be more feasible than, say, London. What are your thoughts on, firstly, a franchise in London and then, I guess, the subsequent Super Bowl in London idea? Well, you know, you never say never. I think, hey, I, I could see it much much more feasible in Buffalo than taking it to London. But on the other hand, you know, you think most of the people that go to these world-class events, whether it's World Cup or Super Bowl or wherever it is, these are people coming from out of town, you know. It's a big boost for the economy, for tourism, whatever. So if you're going to do it, people coming from out of town, as long as you have places for them to stay, people who come – Price is not really a problem. Correct. You know, they're willing they're willing to pay almost anything. So, to do a one time event like that, yeah, hey, there's been Super Bowls. I mean, I I don't know if you how closely you guys follow this, but in <clears throat> in Dallas, they, and this has happened a couple times where there's been a Super Bowl in a stadium that adds additional seats to get up to a higher capacity. Mm-hmm. In Dallas, they actually I don't know how they how this happened, but they actually sold more seats than they actually had in the stadium. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't hear Jerry Jones talking about that very much, but no, not at all. <laughs> That's now I have to ask: when you were pitching to the various owners in Boston, were there any owners that were opposed to the San Francisco bid? You know, they're all very coy. I mean, I think a lot of them wanted to see it because they wanted to see a Super Bowl on the West Coast for all kinds of reasons. I mean, television certainly one of them. For sure. And and it being in a in a warmer climate. So I think a lot of them wanted to do that. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting, so the, the NFL has all kinds of rules 
about everything, which we had to follow. And some of them make sense, and some of them are sort of difficult to swallow. But they had a rule, which we didn't find out until later, is that you know we put together this presentation that we put into an iPad. They said, the NFL said, well, you can't spend more than, I don't know, $100 on whatever the, the, the value is for the uh, – you know, for that. And so we had just done this big presentation. We were putting them on iPads. We had shipped them to all the NFL owners. And all of a sudden, some, you know, some little manager at the NFL says, no, 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 you can't do that. They're worth too much money. And so we sat back and, we, and so we're, tr- they we're trying to figure out what the hell to do. So our solution was, we just said, okay, tell them to watch the presentation and send all the iPads back to us. Yeah. We'll, do- we'll donate them all to charity. The rules are sort of made to be broken. So I think that uh, there ought to be a – you guys could start it. There should be a campaign to have a Super Bowl in Buffalo. Well, um, might be something to workshop, Club. I know you got a keen Buffalo insider. I do. I do. Yeah, I can I can see it too. I, I can honestly see it. Now, in fact, tell us a little bit about your your own podcast. So there, there's three of us. Uh, Fred Clare, who is the longtime general manager of the Dodgers, and Andy Dolich, who was – you know, he was my competitor with the Oakland A's, and he was with the Memphis Grizzlies, and then he actually was with the 49ers for a while. Those guys, you know, wanted to write a book. I wrote a book after the Super Bowl. I wrote a book about how we did it and how we gave all this money to charity because I wanted it to be sort of instructive for people thinking about doing a big event and having a common good result. Those guys wanted to write a book, and I said, you know, I – I don't want to write another book. I mean, it's a pain in the neck. And, you know, unless you're really interested, a lot of people don't read it. So we started a podcast called Life in the Front Office. And we now we're up to, we're up to like 360 episodes, I think. We've been doing it for a couple of years. And just like you guys do, we find people who are interesting in the business, you know, who are making their way through the business. And our audience are, just like I'm, I'm sure your audience is, our audience are students in a lot of the sport management programs around the country or people who are working in professional professional sports organizations, maybe college, who want to move up. And they just want to be able to, to listen to people who have, you know, who maybe have more experience. So we've had fun doing it. And, we, you know, it's a way for us to give back. And so... Uh, but it's, yeah, it's called Life in the Front Office. You can find it the same place you can find your podcast, I think. And uh, it's uh, it's been great fun. There we go. And are, are you active on, say, Twitter or Instagram or any of that? I do a fair amount of it. I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm not as active, frankly, with anything as I used to be. But uh, for me now, in where I'm not looking for a, another job in sports, I'm doing some consulting and things like that. And also what happens is when you, you know, so you've kind of seen it all, done it all, you, you know, you want to give back. And, you know, I, I mean, I, you, you want to keep from becoming a crabby old man. <laughs> <laughs> I wish Justin was here because that's going to be his problem. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Um, I think to find the next generation of talent who's going to work in sports, um, it's so different than when I started, but the need is there and the opportunity is there. So I just want to encourage people to consider it as something to do for a career. Oh, for sure. 100%, man. It's it's awesome talking to you too. It's cool to hear some of the stories you got. You take it from a, a pretty human perspective. 
Well, thank you. I mean, look, this is it, those of us who get to, you know, do this for a living or get to talk about it. I mean, it's a it's one of the things that's I'd say, you know, what's great about sports is that it's more interesting than talking about the weather. You know? <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> I mean, there, and now with now with the pandemic, there's no more water coolers out there. So maybe, you know, you can't gather around the water cooler, you know, if you work in sports. So I just think there's going to be great opportunities going forward. And and there's so many new new sports and new activities mm-hmm. of getting into sports and and people who understand the communication part of it, which you guys are, are part of that, are have great futures in this business. It's great to hear, buddy. It's great to hear for sure. We appreciate that. We appreciate your time as well. You bet. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website, www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasts experience where no sport is left behind.